I mean, it is a it is a it is a big time for for law professors, right? <laughs> and specifically yeah. libertarian law professors, yeah, making for sure. public fucking idiots out of themselves. So, who is this Epstein guy? Uh, well, he had a sex ring, and yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Richard Epstein is an NYU professor, and he uh, he teaches like property torts. He's 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 a big name on one of the biggest torts uh, textbooks, and he uh, teaches water rights and like food and drug law. He says he holds himself out as like a guy who can teach any kind of course. I'm willing to teach anything, but uh, it's sort of obvious that he's he just stamps his ideology, his libertarian ideology, on whatever area of law, and just you know works backward to okay, what interesting things to me would it. Uh, could we say about how to deregulate this entire area? Because I don't believe in any of this shit anyway. Well, it it speaks well uh, to law school that a guy can teach all that stuff, right? In a, in a, in a <laughs> yeah. what is allegedly a graduate <laughs> uh, school yes, setting. Yes. Right? Yeah. Oh he's God. just that smart because he's a libertarian. He's a really yeah. fucking smart guy. But uh, also, since he's a law professor, we know uh, something else about him, which is that he loves to say uh, the N word. Absolutely, every fucking one of these guys. Yeah. Yeah, they're so smart that they get to say the N-word is how it works, actually. They say it in the right way. Yeah. And constantly. That's right. <laughs> no matter what anyone tells them. Right. Specifically, and no ma- don't say the N-word. <laughs> and listeners, no matter what anyone tells you, it's every single one of them. Well, not, maybe not every single yeah. one. <laughs> I mean, my, my con law professor was black. He was Anthony Cook. So I think, you know, if he said it in class, I don't think he ever did, but if he had... We probably would have been okay with it. Well, and I think I, obviously any law professor that listens to this podcast—that's true, say You're for good. sure. That's yeah. a good point. That's an actually a good point. Because you know, a lot of law podcasts are probably going to give you both sides of the issue. Uh, you know, try to yeah. you know Hard strike a balance. Day. Yeah, yeah. Try to strike a balance, but but we're intellectually brave enough, I think, to to take a stand on this one put down a marker and just say um a bright line rule if you will uh don't say the n-word it's bad yeah that's right that's right the a-lab official position unlike other legal podcasts that exist out there is that you, you shouldn't be saying the n-word um however this is a minority view uh, particularly in the legal academy as we're going to discuss today welcome to a-lab this is andy and on this episode, Tarek, Tim, and I discuss some of the ways that the First Amendment rights to speech and association are under attack and being curtailed for some of the most powerless populations in the country, while at the same time, those rights are being dramatically expanded as a deregulatory tool for the most powerful interests in the country. And all the while, various academics and scholars who hold themselves out as the staunchest defenders of the rights to free speech are fiddling away, drawing the thinnest distinctions as an excuse to avoid caring about this stuff, and screeching about their right to say the N-word. Intro to this uh, is, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about the First Amendment, um, and in particular, uh, the renaissance that it's been undergoing. Um, with the rise uh, of the right-wing online guy uh, and free speech guys uh, online, too. Um, I think there's, generally speaking, a cottage industry, if you will, of uh, guys who need to have their free speech rights protected, which includes 
the right to say anything they want anywhere and not to be uh, protested by uh, college kids or otherwise impeded in some way. Right? Yeah, I think I think there's kind of, you know, there's been kind of the rise of the far right that we've seen throughout this country. But on the Internet and kind of in the more rarefied academic spaces, you see people that are defending them not because they're right. You're not fascist specifically, but because they feel that people should get to be as racist as as they want. They have a right to be racist and you know, those college kids protesting them don't know about the these hard-fought rights. Right, it's a slippery slope, you know, which you don't want to go down. It's exactly. As if, uh, if you can't say the N-word, then, uh, you know, what... What, yeah, what can you say? Yeah. <laughs> Lots of words that begin with N. And you just scrubbed them all out of the lexicon. You eliminated 126th of our ability to communicate. Congratulations. It is weird, the sort of nexus between the First Amendment and um, the N-word, right? <laughs> uh, <we> were... <laughs> Normally a different amendment is brought up when the N-word <laughs> said a lot. <laughs> but somehow, clustering around people who, get, who really care a lot about the First Amendment, sooner or later, the N-word's going to come up. Yeah. And it's sooner. It's, there's no... <laughs> Let's, let's be real. It's real soon. So being a law professor, let me leave you with just a couple of hypotheticals for you to mull over on your own. Suppose a sociology professor gives a talk on campus condemning homosexuality as immoral and disease and calling on normal students to steer clear of fags, perverts, and sexual degenerates. What, if anything, should the chair of the sociology department do? As these hypotheticals suggest, there are, in fact, interesting and difficult cases. But we should not let the existence of marginal cases obscure the clarity of our core commitment to academic freedom. So this guy, Jeffrey Stone, uh, is uh, a good example. Um, he's a, uh, where is he? Chicago? Uh, yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a T14 school. Yeah, it's yeah, Chicago. Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Um, he teaches a First Amendment class and historically has made a point of using the N word like every year. So he's got this. He's got this practice of uh, in his lecture. He's he's demonstrating the fighting words doctrine. And like when you hear the story, you know he's like getting excited. Today's the day. Today's the fighting words doctrine. <laughs> yeah. He wakes his wife up in the morning. All right, it's it's fighting words. Doctrine. He probably thinks all the the one L's here. That like the two L's. Are like hey, it's it's the fighting words doctrine. Oh shit, this, man, we're gonna wait this outside is the, the most class. important day. Yeah. yeah. So fighting words doctrine, if you don't know, is just it's a limitation on the First Amendment right to speak words that are meant to incite violence and hatred from the person you're saying them to. Essentially, it's a it's a it's a limited uh, it's a narrowed limitation on your First Amendment right to speak that you can't just like incite somebody to violence. Uh, th- there's also something wrong that you're doing and the courts are willing to recognize that as a as a limited exception to the First Amendment right. Um, but. Out of the thousands of possible examples you could use to demonstrate fighting words or the oblique references to certain words, uh, Professor Stone would love—he'd love to explain it to his class by saying uh, he would tell this little anecdote that he he says happened in early early in his tenure. And and the way the story would go was uh, he would ask Mr. Green in his class, who uh, quote happened to be black, what he thought of the fighting words doctrine. And Mr. Green says in the class, he says, I don't think it's I don't think it's relevant anymore. So then he asks a white student in the next row, okay, well, what do you think about Mr. Green's argument? And he says, That's the dumbest argument I've ever heard, you stupid N-word. 
Which then, <laughs> so he goes hard R when he tells a story every year. <laughs> every year, it's 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 his Christmas basically. Yeah. yeah, and then he says, and then that created a fight, and that is in his mind, I guess, the only way he feels he can introduce this doctrine, and he thinks it's like pedagogically important to go straight up hard R, and then by having pissed you off as a student, now don't you understand a little better? Isn't that isn't that like a good pedagogy there? Don't you kind of get the fighting words thing? Yeah, because obviously the, the, the concept that directly threatening somebody's life is impossible for one else to grasp otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> but Professor Stone has, has evolved, right? I mean, maybe he's an A-Lab listener. Um, because I, as I understand it, uh, just last year, uh, Professor Stone finally uh, decided to stop using that charming anecdote <clears throat> in class. So uh, kudos to him. Right. It was after a, a student who was African-American heard heard the, the joke in class, and then he wrote an op-ed in the school newspaper. Uh, I believe there was a meeting between the Black uh, Law Students Union and or Association and Professor Stone, and probably after a lot of other invectives thrown at him, he decided <laughs> uh, not to use the word anymore. Can you imagine having to face a committee meeting with, like, multiple stakeholders from the university as well as a student advocacy group who then have to tell you that you can't write your own N-word pass? Yeah, I can imagine the second week of my law school. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if you listen to the online guys and the 1A guys, though, I mean, this this appears to be you know the most important. 1A issue going is, you know, how often uh, and when and where can uh, everyone keep saying the N-word whenever possible. Yeah, to be clear, Professor Stone is relative moderate on this stuff. Like, he talked about it, but I think think once he realized that he was actually offending people, uh, he he shied away from using it and I believe publicly repudiated his... His former N word. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. We Which get... we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get to later. Not every professor yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Later in the episode, you'll see a professor chose a different tack. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he only he also only said it once a year. Right. Uh, yeah. Unlike some of these guys. But I of having like an N word ritual. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like how a former alcoholics just kind of only drink like on New Year's Eve or something. God. Oh, it's so bad. But, you know, there are other First Amendment issues playing out in the courts and in society today, right? I mean, um, you know, sort of the classic one that everyone knows, uh, Citizens United, you know, the sort of corporations are people and money is speech uh, is sort of shorthanded as that. But, I mean, really that, that was a signal by the current Roberts Court that the court is kind of open uh, for business, uh, to hear 1A cases uh, in kind of a, a deregulatory or kind of counter, uh, in, a way, in a manner that's sort of counter to what you might expect uh, the First Amendment to do, right? Yeah, so, it's an invitation to bring your first, bring uh, an objection to a regulation that you have. If you can frame it as a speech right, uh, you know, we'll consider it. Maybe we'll grant it. Uh, and, and then we will use that to dismantle various regulations that are put upon, you know, commercial speech or, or anything, anything that gets in the way of money to act in a political manner. So in, in that vein, you know, uh, my, my least favorite case of, of the past several years, uh, Janus, of course, uh, which on First Amendment grounds uh, basically 
ruled that uh, uh, public sector unions could not uh, force members uh, to pay dues uh, on the First Amendment grounds, right? Um, there's the NIFLA pregnancy uh, crisis center cases, NIFLA versus Becerra, um, which had to do with California mandating that these uh, phony uh, pregnancy crisis centers, which are basically set up to, I think, stop people from getting abortions, right? Right. Um, right. Yeah. California law forcing them forcing them to read a disclaimer saying, by the way, there are real medical yeah. facilities you can by go to. By the way, to. we're faking it and lying to you right yeah. now. And the real <laughs> abortion places up the street, you got fooled by us. That warning uh, was struck down uh, on free speech grounds, right? And, and uh, of course, there is the issue of certain anti-BDS laws, uh, that are uh, wending their way through various courts and state and federal legislatures, right? If you're not familiar, it stands for Boycott, Divest, Sanction. And it's it's a movement that seeks to stop uh, financial involvement with the state of Israel through boycotts of products, um, of services uh, that come from Israeli companies, withdrawal of investments from those companies. Um, it, it seeks to impose sanctions on the state of Israel uh, or various persons doing business with Israel. Uh, and so... That, that's like a grassroots movement that attempts to influence, you know, uh, people, companies, governments it, to, to get involved with this, you know, boycotting Israel movement. Um, now, you might think, if you're a regular A-Lab listener, you might think that we are hypocrites for doing an episode <laughs> that kind of defends people who want to impose sanctions just, you know, two episodes after excoriating the practice. And to those people... If you're one of those people thinking that, I would say, fuck you. <laughs> Go say the N-word in front of a bunch of one L's. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I think by the end of the episode, uh, I'll explain why, that, why it's actually a consistent position for us. Um, but the difference here, though, is that the sanctions that we talked about in episode seven um, – these are sanctions being imposed by nations, uh, international bodies at a high level of official process. Uh, this is a tremendous power being wielded to effect that are generally, you know, imperialist aims. Um, sometimes under the guise of enforcing, you know, human rights law, but very often uh, punishing countries for failing to act as a client state or for simply being enemies to our allies, you know, will impose very harsh penalties on them. Whereas BDS is is different. It's a, it's a movement that really has you know, very little traction. Uh, it has grown out of the exact opposite situation. It has grown out of a failure of process, a failure of of uh, government power to address the human rights abuses that occur in Palestine. Yeah, I think I think it's important to remember that a lot of the laws that we're going to talk about today really focus on the boycotting and divestment 
of you know Israeli products or things built in Israeli settlements and things like that. Uh, and even if you know suddenly you know uh, Jacobin took over the country and, and the U.S. was imposing <laughs> sanctions on on Israel. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a different, it's a different economic context. Uh, you know, the, the inspiration is South Africa, not Iraq. Like, I, I think all of us would start opposing it if, you know, the Israelis weren't getting medicine and were starved to death. Like, it would be a much different situation, but that's definitely not going to happen. So, uh, to reiterate, fuck you if you think you're going <laughs> to come at the A-Lab podcast account <laughs> being like, this is hypocrisy. <laughs> the, the lesson of the sanctions episode also was that the leveraging of of the United States financial system by the United States government provides a tool that is so wildly... It's OP. Yeah, it's OP, exactly. And whereas the BDS movement can't even get the B going, (laughs) let let alone the D or the S. So um, I think there's not a huge disconnect between thinking that BDS is not necessarily an amoral enterprise and thinking that uh, the 60-year embargo on Cuba uh, might actually be. Yeah, yeah. Israel Israel's in no danger of being ground under by the, right. by the tremendous juggernaut of BDS. Yeah. If the U.S. if the U.S. were to wield that economic influence to piss off Sabra enough to like stop illegal settlements, it will be with a bullet the best thing U.S. foreign policy has done in probably its entire existence. Yeah. B- BDS seeking to leverage the economic might of 15 college kids. Uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah so sorry so they're not so we're not trying to mock them what we're trying to do is point out what we will be describing as the tremendous weight that is being pressed against this and to think for a moment that if it was more powerful what kinds of uh rights would be being trampled to to stop it if it was effective yeah if it was effective if if it was actually producing any kind of political change what sorts of measures would be being passed by states and politicians that are a lot more friendly to israel to to stop it and what kinds of justifications people in the legal academy uh and and you know people in the judicial system would be making to to provide cover for those laws right that's right right so so just to reiterate bds advocates uh are not in any position to like go to any international body uh, and request them to intervene in the plight they find themselves in. So, because the United States maintains a persistent, cynical veto at the UN Security Council that that shuts down even the most mealy-mouthed criticism. So I think uh, during, just, was it 2014? Uh, There was, I think there was a proposed resolution to condemn the use of, like, white phosphorus, like, shooting kids in the (laughs) face. And the United States was like, do we really want to do that? I don't, eh, maybe we should be, and this was, you know, under the Obama administration and they're saying, no, nah, we're not, we're not going to do that. Um, so, so BDS is this movement that grows out of a failure of process and a failure of power to address these problems. And just like we talked about, if, if you're, if you're a regular listener to ALAB, we talked about this in the Weeb Wars episodes regarding me too, that oftentimes grassroots movements grow out of, uh, the failure of, of official process to address injustices. Right. And, and I think, you know, even the sort of opponents of BDS, uh, you know, a lot of the, the folks who are heavily uh, invested in Israel or, or the Zionist movement, um, their fear about BDS is not so much that the crippling sanctions that the Oberlin students will impose upon their <laughs> you know, medical, medical uh, system, um, but rather that there would be, 
you know, powers of suasion and sort of the sort of the moral argument being made that will get some traction. Right. I mean, the, it, it really is um, the, the, the one the one area where I think BDS has the ability to do damage over time in a, in a lasting way uh, is in sort of the moral uh, arguments yeah, that it, it makes. It fundamentally opens the doors for millions of Americans to just kind of look at, you know, their their phones or their TVs and go like, why are we allowing all this shit to happen? Like, why why am I like allowing this to happen with my dollars or with with my school or, or whatever? It's interesting. You guys, I, I think I don't disagree with either of your perspectives, but I sort of see it's like the way that Coca-Cola is the biggest, you know, soda advertiser, despite being incredibly dominant in the market. It's just it's just crushing the opposition, you know, that any any competition is inappropriate and just seen as something to be stomped out before it ever grows. Even one little creeper, one little leaf on the weed. Yeah, I think it definitely could be both. Like, I think Israel just doesn't want to take any chances. But, like, that's definitely – I think to them the worst-case scenario is that Americans realize that they're not the beacon of freedom of the Middle East, that they do spend, you know, millions of dollars and, and politicians spend, you know, hours and hours saying to their constituents. Right. Oh, but, I mean, and that's why I think you you see a lot of backlash to the Ilhan Omar. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because it, it, I think there's this notion that uh, – uh, there could be a foothold being gained. And therefore, you know, I think the actions that you see on the state and federal level are directly responsive to, to, to stamping right. out yeah, that. They're, weed, they're as, as very much said. the, the canary in the coal mine on, on right. that stuff actually coming to pass. Right. So, so to move into the BDS, the anti BDS laws directly, the, the very first bill the Senate considered in 2019 last year uh, was, it included someone tried to sort of sneak in this provision that would give states a, a legal blessing to punish companies that choose not to do business with Israel or Israeli-owned businesses, um, which is uh, one of the demands of BDS. Uh, so this this proposed law was in conversation with 28 states that have already adopted laws to punish companies that choose to boycott Israel. If you are a person or a company that uh, is participating in BDS, uh, 28 states have passed you know, statutes and regulations, in some cases an executive order, uh, to use the state financial power to block uh, any participation in BDS and use, and use all of the state's financial power to the extent that it can to prevent BDS from accomplishing any of its goals. Um, South Dakota's governor just last month signed an executive order um, that was uh, in line with these anti-BDS uh, proposals. And so the, the measures are designed to what? They, they prevent you from doing business with the state if you refuse to sign a loyalty oath? Right. Right. They all say that you're going to not not do business with any companies that operate in Israel or any of the settlements or use Palestinian labor or anything like that. Yeah, you won't refrain from doing business with them. Right. You don't maintain an active position uh, on that. Um, they That's a way to say that clearly. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, they can these things can stop the state from hiring you, can stop the state from renewing your contract if you're already employed with the state. Uh, that was the subject in one case where a speech pathologist who, you know, his entire client base was, you know, public school districts. She was a child speech pathologist. And uh, suddenly she found on her contract renewal uh, – she had to take a loyalty oath, essentially, saying you don't participate in BDS, right? You you support the state of Israel, and she found that you know particularly offensive. Um, so 
they essentially place conditions on your dealing with the state that you if you want to deal with us if you want any part of the if you want a government contract uh, in any respect you're going to forego support for bds right which is foregoing a boycott uh, you know the b in bds as we said is a boycott which is you know kind of your personal dealings with you know the things that you choose to buy right if you don't have a soda stream and it was be- yeah. and it was privately because it came from israel and you have a, an objection to shooting teenagers in the back on camera uh mm, you just broke the law <laughs> so, so this law this law doesn't this law doesn't get passed democrats filibustered it but has having nothing to do with the bds port it's just because it was snuck in to something that happened during the government shutdown uh, i was kind of excited at first and i was like oh the dems kind of stood up for this but no it actually was just because schumer said no we're not we're not passing any we're not passing any bills until the shutdown's addressed uh uh, so, but once the shutdown was over, it easily passed with a huge majority, yeah. seventy-seven to twenty-three. Although interestingly, none of the twenty-twenty candidates uh, voted; they all voted no for it. So, well, not all of them. Klobuchar voted yes, but Warren Sanders, who obviously was probably going to vote no for this anyway, Booker, Gillibrand, all those people voted no. I mean, you got twenty-three no's, right? <laughs> I think in, a, in another time you might have seen the you know hundred zero, right? right? I mean, yeah, yeah, that is true. Right. So the so the law has. The law's passed the Senate. It's stuck in the House. It's not federal law right now. But but it's important to note that what the Cong- well, Congress is trying to do here, uh, which is it doesn't establish a federal anti-BDS policy. What it says is that, listen, no, none of your state laws that might be anti-BDS, they're not preempted by Congress. The Constitution, you know, if, you're, if you don't know this, there's the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land, which means that any law that's in conflict with the Constitution, the Constitution wins. It trumps it. Um, and, and furthermore, any federal law, uh, that exists trumps any state law, so long as the federal law kind of occupies that area or is meant to, to legislate the same sort of thing. If that law is in conflict with a state law, the federal law trumps. Right. Um, assuming Congress has authority to, to legislate. In that right. Area. Yeah. Yeah. Assuming that that's constitutional. Yeah. They have the power to do, they don't have general powers. So it has to be an enumerated power. Congress is basically saying, no, we're not legislating anything. States can do whatever they want. Uh, it's really interesting because this is both a constitution, like a, a, a civil rights issue and a foreign <laughs> policy issue, which right. you would think that the Congress would want. They would have some kind of vested interest in regulating this in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but instead, they decided that the governor of South Dakota is far <laughs> better equipped to know about the sort of contracting powers of literally every entity in their state than what, what Congress thinks should happen. Right. And what's going on here? So, so on, as you point out, it's a strange law. It's it's kind of strange. There aren't any federal statutes that I think mention BDS, and you might think this wasn't no. really in question. That co- nobody nobody was confused on the point or thought that Congress was preempting state laws. So coming out and stating that we're not preempting them is a weird kind of statement to make. Except that what they're doing is is a couple of things. They are first just sticking it in your fucking eye. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck yep. you. Psychic warfare. You. That's right. Criticism of Israel is not allowed. Uh, and just from the highest body that we can possibly legislate that from, FYI, don't even think about it. But but also, it gives a heads up to states, state authorities administering fed, state authorities administering their own programs, but also state authorities administering federal programs and federal dollars, which can be many billions of dollars uh, that uh, you know many red states are the recipients of. That these are good to go for including in your anti BDS provisions. This is like sort of. At least my guess about what I think was probably happening with what they were trying to signal here. 
which is if you just think about if you think about the amount of money that certain states are recipients of, like just Medicaid, it's billions of dollars in contracts for administration of medical services. And right, even highway cops, yeah, things like that, all, all kinds get of stuff. by the federal government. Right. And what Congress is saying is, don't worry. If you want to take a giant shit on BDS in administering <laughs> those dollars, we're not going to stop you. Go ahead. Please, please do so. That's what they're, yeah. that's what they're telling the states. We'll get to this in a second, but I mean, these laws weren't being challenged on preemption grounds as far as I'm aware at all, but they were being challenged on constitutional grounds. So this is... I think, in a way, just the Congress being doing what it could to say to, to those states, right? Yeah, we're right. we're gonna, yeah, go nuts. We're not gonna right. fight it. It also stands as as potentially now. Now again, it's, it's, it wasn't passed through the House, but it also stands as Congress's, you know, implicit interpretation of the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't block yeah. this stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Undermining ahead of time any any constitutional argument against. Exactly. Right? So you guys are trading in tropes. Um, <laughs> good, good is what I say. <laughs> Not me, of course, uh, but you guys are. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's the, the, again getting back to Omar, this notion of uh, suggesting that there's an Israel lobby or that it might, uh, you know, have an interest in advocating for Israel's interests in the United States and Israel's uh, uh, reputation in the United States is tantamount to um, uh, treason. I suppose. Yeah, right? Now, uh, just just to clarify, you're talking about Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, and she was roundly dragged everywhere right. for for yeah. having mentioned the uncontroversial fact that there's an Israel lobby and it's incredibly <laughs> successful. That's right. And for saying the word Benjamin, which is apparently an English oh, that's right, right. that's right. Yeah. Um, but uh, note that uh, even the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, was tweeting uh, in in early February of this year. Uh, that whoever boycotts us will be boycotted. This is so fucking funny to come on the heels of all of this discussion and watching all of these right. people say this is all tropes and shit. And I can't believe you're, I can't believe you'd even suggest that we would use all this influence in order to promote the interests of Israel. <laughs> Prime Minister of Israel tweets it out and says, right. "It's yeah. also." He says, "It was also not for nothing that the American administration has taken this step <laughs> together with us. In recent years, we have promoted laws in most U.S. states which determined <laughs> that strong action is to be taken against whoever pressed the We have paid off a cadre of local politicians." <laughs> <laughs> he just says it out loud. I mean, I know this is the era of quiet. Pop Here, look loud. at this video of Marco Rubio kneeling before an Israeli flag, <laughs> <laughs> chanting the Kabbalah. It's fucking unreal. So, in the in the face of all of these people trying to run this tropes argument, the Prime Minister of Israel is like, "I don't know what you guys are talking about. We absolutely yeah. did that, and we, we love won. that shit." <laughs> we are frantically advocating in every single state for laws just like this, and we've succeeded in 21 of the 50, uh, 50 so far. 28. Right? 28. Sorry. Right. Right. And these are in the gamut from, I mean, I think New York and Illinois both have them, which are, you know, Democratic strongholds as well as, you know, more traditionally Republican states. Like, this is not like a, necessarily like an ALEC ploy that, you, I mean, ALEC bills also get passed by Democrats every so often, but it's not it's not that partisan of a, of a thing that's going on. It's, it's happening all throughout the country. Oh, yeah. Okay, so these state laws, these state laws exist widely, as we just talked about. Now... They have not gone unchallenged. The ACLU has challenged a, cu a couple different state BDS laws on First Amendment grounds. And so far, a couple of them have been blocked. Uh, Kansas and Arizona, they got blocked by federal judges. Uh, Texas 
was also blocked. The Texas requirement is that you have to say in order to contract with the state that you're not boycotting Israel. But in the definitional section of the statute, it it defines boycott Israel as refusing to deal with uh, terminating business activities with or otherwise taking any action that is intended to penalize, inflict economic harm on, or limit commercial re- relations with Israel. Now, that, that's often what we call in the legal profession kind of like a catch-all clause, which is after having enumerated the other things, we also mean every other possible Any fucking, other thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Anything we forgot because we were lazy. That's right. We're not going to write it all Don't out. Don't do that either. But just so, Including but not limited to. Right. So... Now, now, this doesn't just cover Israel, though. This covers uh, even a person or entity doing business with Israel or in an Israeli-controlled area. Yeah, they they define Israel specifically to mean uh, areas that are controlled by Israel. So, I mean, <laughs> right. the Golan Heights, obviously, which is in <laughs> they, contravention of international law. But also, I mean, very importantly, the illegal settlements. Because yeah, I they think go out of their way to include the settlements. Yeah, because BDS, I think, knowing that blanket bans on Israel aren't always the most politically expedient thing to do, have targeted it, you know, goods coming from those settlements and this texas law is basically nope can't do that either what's interesting about this oath aside from the definitional stuff we just talked about how they define israel is that when you when you look at this catch-all clause otherwise taking any action that is intended to penalize inflict economic harm on or limit commercial is uh, relations with israel is that that covers uh, not just your own personal decision to not purchase things but it covers at least you could interpret it if you read it you know Perhaps your speech advocating the boycott. If you were to say, I mean, certainly encouraging another person to do it, even if you cannot do it yourself, would be an action that is intended to inflict economic harm or limit commercial relations with Israel. It's, by the it's difficult to interpret it any other way, right? So it seems to forbid not only the boycotting uh, itself but also the speech about the boycott. Now, this will become important in a section because of the bad faith distinctions I think that we're going to see. But there, there's no question that the formation here, using this catch-all clause, is meant to deter criticism of Israel. There are extremely right. harsh penalties imposed. If you are this child speech pathologist whose client— That's the plaintiff, right? Right, that's right. In, uh, I don't know. It might be the Texas case. Uh, it is. It's a model. Yeah, right. Yeah. If you are a child speech pathologist whose clients are the you know, public school districts of Texas— and then they say, well, you can't have a contract with us. You can't do your job uh, if you support BDS in any way. Um, and you look at this and you look at the oath you're supposed to be taking, the thing you're signing on to in your contract. It says you can't even advocate for it, not even just like your purchasing decisions, but you any action. And these are extremely right. harsh penalties. And what that's going to do is it's going to deter your criticism. It's going to have a prophylactic effect. Yeah, even if people aren't necessarily contracting with the state, if they think they're going to do it in the future, they're not going right. to engage in that activity to begin with. And even if the law goes away, they now know, oh, the state does not want to do business with people who are outspoken critics oh, of Israel. Yeah. So I'm just going to not bother because I might, you know, I'm a vendor for trucks or, or books or whatever, and I, I don't want to have to deal with that yeah if I government contract contracting procurement is hard enough as it is and you don't need right. another thing of them trying to you can't figure out like why were they so mad about my proposal in this way and really they were just mad about the bds thing that they never disclosed to you so that texas law also got struck down uh it, it was blocked <laughs> yeah however though understand that the program behind this you know when when the israeli prime minister tweets that we've been working in we've been working for many years to get these laws passed in most states this isn't the final word 
These people aren't no. giving up on this because a couple of federal judges were like, it seems like a pretty clearly violation. Federal district year. court judges, too. Trial trial judges, right? And I'm right. sure this is not, not, not in any way, shape, or form over for even those cases. No, 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 no. Right. So a, a court in Arkansas this year dismissed a suit challenging a law that required government contractors to pledge not to boycott Israel or reduce your fees by 20%. <laughs> they, know, they know that canceling it isn't going to be they're like that's a thing that's not going to yeah fun. just fucking commit suicide just commit financial <laughs> corporate suicide if you want to boycott Israel so it's important to look at the uh, the Arkansas decision to understand what the opposing position is why doesn't a boycott count what they're saying is that boycotts are not protected inherently expressive conduct because a refusal to deal, which is uh, you know legal terminology for a, a boycott, or your particular commercial commercial purchasing decisions, they don't communicate ideas through words or other expressive media. So just your purchasing decision, your decision not to buy something, doesn't tell me anything. Uh, uh, it doesn't communicate anything to me. So if I'm willfully misunderstanding uh, your actions, then your actions don't mean anything. Um, this is. I've sort of given away, I've sort of tipped my hand about what I think about this distinction, uh, which is not very much, because you can say that somebody's uh, speech is is inherently divested from their action, because until you accompany it with your speech, I don't know what you mean. Now, right. These are just random decisions in the marketplace of people making moral judgments about which kind of hummus they're trying to buy is kind of the argument that they're making. Right. Now... Now that would be that would be an interesting argument, except that the people making these decisions are accompanying them with a statement about right. why they're fucking right. making them. So you're not confused about why they're making them. You know, it might not be inherent, it might not be expressive conduct, but it is, and is and is inextricably intertwined with the speech that people accompany them with, where they say, "I'm not buying a soda stream." Because it comes from Israel, and I'm tired of seeing children get shot in containment areas while, uh, you know, IDF soldiers fucking laugh about it on social media. Right, and and to put an even finer point on it, a boycott isn't just you saying that you're not going to do it. The point of a boycott is to organize other people, and so the speech that accompanies that organization is inherent to the boycott. Yes. When the United Farm Workers did that, when they stopped buying grapes, they went out in front of grocery stores. They, you know, flyered everywhere saying, do not buy these grapes. These people are evil. Right. And also, like, if you are the person who uh, is putting forth the product that's getting boycotted and you see after a surge of this communication, you see your profits go down, it's not fucking mysterious to you. You figure it out. Whereas conversely, if you don't do that, it is. They're like, why are these people not buying this? If they all just silently decide to do it, then there's no there's no there's no correlation between the two things and furthermore if you are only allowed the speech of a boycott but not the act of actually not buying it then the boycott threat is meaningless because you know in this case Israel knows you are compelled via the state you know saying we're going to cut your contract you're compelled to not follow through on that threat right i think that's and a really so the interesting boycott point. becomes meaningless right you're right so so one of the things that they'll hinge on is that you of course have the right to expressively right. state that people should boycott it's just that if you want to do now that that's your constitutional right now if you want to do business with the state we're going to condition your right to do business with the state on your uh, foregoing the right to act on that speech <laughs> right. making your speech meaningless and so what you've got is you've got this i think arguably unconstitutional condition 
being imposed by these oaths such that you have to waive your constitutional right to express yourself in order to, you know, get in on government contracts that everybody else gets in on without having to do such a thing. Well, and and as we talked about in the beginning, if the Roberts court announced it was open for business with 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 Citizens United, uh, the shorthand of that one is that money is speech, right? Right. Um, so my refusal to buy Sabra hummus uh, is not protected speech, but it is. Money is speech in other contexts. I, I, we quickly start to lose the plot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. distinction. When rich yeah. guys want to buy an election, money is speech. When you want to say that uh, shooting white phosphorus facts. in the face of a child is bad, uh, that whoa, let's uh, let's talk about that. It doesn't sound. I, I actually don't know what you're talking about here. I can't Go tell if that's inherently expressive <laughs> or I can't make out what you're trying to say. Okay, so so that's that's uh, I think a dumb legal distinction that ends up getting drawn in these cases. However, I do think that ultimately the anti-BDS people, and this is this is maybe a more controversial point. I actually think that legally, logical and consistency-wise, they're right. Right. They're they're at least not completely wrong. No, I right. Think maybe. Yeah. On 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 the point that they want to make. Uh, now I better get to this point quick before it sounds like you could just cut this soundbite and make me sound like a racist. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the soundbite. It's gonna be cut to say that you're racist <laughs> in the BDS argument. Right. Right. The the but the the anti-BDS argument is. Uh, at least one of their strongest points is look if the government can't prevent the organization of discriminatory economic activity uh which is what a boycott is on the basis of national origin or race which is what the bds uh boycott divestment sanctions is then you have a raft of corrective measures state anti-discriminatory laws that are all getting on the chopping block right if that's unconstitutional to 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 prevent that stuff then you're going to have all kinds of problems where when somebody wants to boycott, they want to kick you know gay customers out of their store, and you tell them, well, that's that's illegal. We don't allow that in the state. You know that can be that can be thwarted. That can be thwarted by the same First Amendment argument. The fact that people have the right to advocate for a boycott of say like gay-owned businesses and employees, we generally don't think means that they have that the practice of excluding them or denying them employment, for instance, or refusing them to carry them in a taxi or something is legal. We wouldn't... We... Right, many many states have... I mean, it's federal law that you can't do a lot of those things. Right. I, at, at least I, I think it's not a controversial First Amendment position that you can go out on the corner and say that, like, you know, we should get rid of... You know, we should get rid of a particular yeah. race or particular sexuality. Like, we, we don't... Um, at least I don't, I don't think that it's illegal or that it should be illegal for people to go out and say, I'm racist and you should be racist with me. Um, oh yeah, you you don't think that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be clear, Andy does not think. <laughs> Andy is fully in support of people going hey, out being racist hey, in the street. You want to carry a torch? <laughs> <laughs> so, but the point that I'm trying to get to is that this argument that's being made by the anti-BDS people 
It's actually pretty logically consistent because there really isn't a distinction between anti-discrimination laws, which prevent you from targeting a minority of the population for, you know, uh, particular economic harms or whatever, and this boycott, divest, sanctions movement, which targets, you know, a technical minority of the population for economic harm. Or, or per, not minority of this population, but another nation, but still a, a kind of minority. Yeah. Uh, for economic harm. There's not a really good, logical, consistent distinction. Now, I don't think, I, I hope it's clear from what I've said so far in this, and you should be wondering, like, I don't think that that means that BDS... Uh, should be illegal and i certainly don't think it means that those anti-discrimination laws should be struck down just to add to it too i just but there's also not a logical distinction between whether or not in general your first amendment right to speak trumps rights of minorities to not be discriminated against there's not you know there's no reason that the the bar shouldn't be completely in one way or the other that you can't discriminate against literally anyone or that you have an unlimited right to free speech. Neither of those things can really be logically uh, uh, sussed out either, which is what, I mean, we're going to get to some other people that try to do that, and you find it all falls apart to gibberish because they're both rights. I think people think of free speech as like a, a tank that you fill up, and there's a good level of free speech and a bad level of free speech, but really what it is is that the right kind of hits up against all these other rights, and we just have to make judgment calls as to whether or not uh, that which right should triumph. And the reason that we, you know, the three of us believe that the free speech tr- one should try it for BDS versus, I mean, the, you know, the, the Westboro Baptist Church maybe should have less free speech rights is because we're not stupid. <laughs> we, look at, we look at the facts that are on the ground. We're not trying to derive it from some from some distinction in the heavens. We just look at what's going on and say, well, I mean, given the history and all this, like one should go one way and one should go the other way. It doesn't doesn't get more uh, uh, difficult than that. I remember I was arguing. It wasn't this, but it was some very similar point online with some asshole. I don't, you know, whatever. But he's like, oh, so you just think society should dictate this stuff? And it's like, yeah, kind of to an extent. Like, <laughs> right. you know, that's this sort should, of its job. That's yeah. yeah that's what society is there for is to determine <laughs> these sorts of, you know. And sometimes it makes the wrong calls. And there needs to be protections against it. But again, those are they're. they're you base that on what exists out in the world. One might even say realism. <laughs> right. So, so I, I think that's a really important point, and 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 it dovetails with the point I was making that there's no logical distinction between the BDS and the and the uh, Westboro Baptist guys, unless you're willing to do what courts will never do, which is what you just talked never. about, which is right. acknowledge a historical power imbalance as a factor in applying these kinds of laws. So we what courts did, sorry to interrupt, but co- what courts did instead was when the 14th Amendment was written and later when the Civil Rights was enacted, they just said, no discrimination whatsoever. And so now we're stuck picking up the pieces of a legal system that views discriminating against the powerful as equally bad as the powerless. And it allows for, for powerful actors to use discrimination and free speech as a, as a shield to grassroots attacks on their power. تهرانه یعنی شهری که هرچی که توش میبینی باعث تحریکه تحریک روحت با تو آشغال دونی میفهمی تو هم آدم نیستی یا آشغال you have to wonder how we got here and, and who are the dramatis personae that are that are kind of leading the First Amendment in that direction. 
Uh, and to that end, we decided to hold up one Eugene Volok as kind of one of the the First Amendment thoughts who who were thotting <laughs> it up for their free speech. Absolute king. Um, yeah, exactly. He is he is a definite king. Uh, Volok is a professor. He's at UCLA, if I recall correctly. That is right. Uh, he was born in the breakaway Russian province of the Ukraine uh, and came here. Uh, and he definitely fits a lawyer brain archetype. I think that's been made fun of multiple times in this podcast. That is like the contrarian, smarter than thou asshole who thinks that he has an answer for everything. And he's not he's not advocating for any of this stuff. He's just saying that people have a right to do that. And so he's just asking questions. <laughs> yeah, he's just asking questions. He's just saying, you know, if you think about it, these people should have the right to do it. If we truly live in a free society, uh, and he has just a real good list of associations of of, of a lab uh, heavy hitters. Uh, another uh, another Kaczynski alum. He clerked for Kaczynski right out of, out of law school. Kaczynski. I swear. It's it's really, yeah. This was not on purpose, but we're not just going. We're not just calling up like you know, Kaczynski's <laughs> front office clerk and asking about it. You find a magnificent freak in the law, and you just you just pick away at the veneer, and there's a Kaczynski clerkship under there. Fucking you got a stream from this guy's unreal. <laughs> you got to imagine what those like work dinners are. They're like eating like I don't know raw like endangered you know. <laughs> They're, they're like they're cloning hominids, like you know, Homo erectus, and just like eating one on a table. I'll, I'll say this: it's not a fucking accident, okay? At this yeah, point, it's not, if it's you're not. listening to this podcast and you're hearing every episode, this is not a fucking accident that we keep finding yeah. connections to Kaczynski. <laughs> uh, after Kaczynski, he went to Sandra Day O'Connor. He clerked for her, uh, and then has just been at UCLA his entire time. After that. Uh, he's also friends with Cernovich. I don't remember if you guys have not done uh, an episode on on the 21st century's greatest lawyer, right? Uh, <laughs> not yet. No, no. But, uh, but Tar- I don't. I don't but know. Target yeah. specific has a personal history, I think, with the man. Yeah. He owes me. He owes me ten thousand dollars. <laughs> That's as far as I'm going to go on that one. Yeah. I, I am owed ten thousand dollars by Mike Cernovich. <laughs> Uh, Volk also filed an amicus on uh, Joni. I don't actually have his first name, but he was um, Zoe Quinn's boyfriend. Patient uh, Zero ga- of Gamergate. Patient Zero of Gamergate. He wrote the like kind of proto Me Too letter of I don't. It was all stupid bullshit. It was all stupid drama. Who cares? But he was told by a judge not to post. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Volk was there. Volk, yeah, posting N word. He is a true spirit of of First Amendment stuff. Um, he did not like uh, Janice. Um, he thought that that was that was too much. He felt uh, that union dues were more akin to taxation than they were to uh, speech. Good for him, actually. A great, <laughs> great set of rationales. Yep. Um, he's absolutely right. I mean, it, t- right. it tells you how fucking bad Janice was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> even this guy uh, was not willing to go that far. Yeah. On, on the other hand, though, he is. I mean, Scalia had a bit of this, uh, but he is definitely one of those people that tries to use his pet cause to have these like quote unquote good ideas that like are really just meant to stroke his ego and, and meant to show like he's so smart that sometimes he'll, he'll take alternate sides of, uh, you're never going to know where he's going to come out. You never know where he's going to come out. Yeah. Yeah. His intellect is just that uh, far reaching with regards to the BDS laws. Uh, he definitely took that contrarian tack and wrote an article for reason in his blog, the Vulcan conspiracy, which by the way, uh, he has what the Zoom fuck conference. is that, by the way? Can I, it was on. It was on Washington Post. It's his blog. It's his. Why you know, is it the Volk it's, conspiracy? It's, I don't know. It's, it's, it sounds like something out of like I don't know Curb Your Enthusiasm or, or something. 
he has a lot of coronavirus posts since this whole thing has started. Uh, basically, is one that's that's I won't I'll, I'll bore you with the specifics, but it's called Corona Daily Death Rates by Country, and it's basically him just shrugging his shoulders, being like, "This isn't that much worse than when all people are dying, you know, your normal death rates." But who knows? Like, I don't even know. Like, even for like conspiracy posting, like, not it's saying nothing. <laughs> Uh, he has a Zoom conversation with Michael Abramowitz, Will Bowd, and Orrin Kerr on the 31st. They're enjoying a couple drinks Don't as miss. Well. That's fun. Yeah. yeah, don't miss. Oh, well. I'm sure that will be I didn't know incredible. about that, but I might check that out, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it, sounds, it sounds pretty lit. But he wrote an article on the Arkansas Law uh, that was one of those kind of little uh, BDS bands. Um, basically saying that, that boycotts of Israel, or specifically that law, uh, was generally constitutional, and in it he relies on a case called Claiborne Hardware, which he basically uses. I don't believe the holding of that case had much to do with this at all, but he was basically saying that economic activity is generally not protected by the First Amendment. So therefore, any boycott, any any laws that are meant to dampen economic activity uh, are, are generally constitutional as long as they're not accompanied by speech, which is we just talked about um, – is is basically bullshit. He basically tries to get the rights fight that I was talking about earlier. He tries to argue that away and logic it away uh, by saying that uh, actually uh, economic speech is, isn't speech, and so therefore there is no conflict of rights. So, so an interesting thing about his blog post is he often really gets in the comments. So if you ever want to talk to Eugene Volk, you can go directly <laughs> and make a com- make it make an account on whatever site he's posted his shit on, and he will like probably respond to you. And so somebody asks him, so he he responds uh, on the uh, anti-BDS law and says, yeah, I think it's generally constitutional. He's not concerned about the chilling effects, which is normally the first thing out of every, you know, uh, First Amendment freak's mouth Mm -hmm. is, whoa, 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 this is going to chill speech. He's not worried about that shit at all. Well, to to be fair, he is also one of those people that um, is vehemently against things like workplace sexual harassment laws. Uh, and discrimination laws, and he's not worried about the chilling effects of not having discrimination laws and things like that. So I think it's a it's a very selective worry about disparate impact, for example. Right. So so he's so he says like I, I generally think that this is uh, constitutional, and then someone in the comments of that says, "How do you square this with the prohibition on uh, working with the NRA that came up in California?" Um, and he says, "Listen." A prohibition on contractors dealing with the NRA, that's based on the NRA's viewpoint. NRA is a speaking <laughs> organization, and its critics oppose it because of what it says in its advocacy and lobbying. That's his fucking principled... That shit makes no sense. If you... if <laughs> I'm just fucking blown away by this. He's one of those people that thinks that laws are like spells, and you have to like add the right words and gestures to make like a first amendment protection spell work um but yeah i mean he just and in order to get around that stuff he just tries to logic away like the idea that like oh organizations have viewpoints but countries don't whereas like israel clearly has a viewpoint that it has a right to you know snipe children in the streets because it does that and legally privileges its, its soldiers to do that like it clearly has a viewpoint on that stuff, regardless of what individual citizens may or may not think about that stuff. Although clearly, I mean, you know, the, the, the opinion polls on that stuff tend to suggest that they do have a pretty unified view on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry to, you know, the five Israelis that they do think it's bad, but 
you know, the, the vast majority of your countrymen have expressed a certain viewpoint. Um, but there's no, there, again, there's no logical distinction between a country and an organization on their policy, especially when both of them are lobbying the same institution, the U.S. Congress, to make laws benefiting them on what they believe are policies that help them. It reveals him. If you go and look in the comments here, people will pose challenging questions to him, and he will reveal himself to be a hack because he'll do the, all these backflips and uh, fancy footwork in order to avoid uh, the clear implications, which is that you don't give a fuck about the free speech in this situation. You've chosen the political winner and loser, and you're working backwards. Uh, Volk actually uses this argument in his comments. You can get the preview on it. And it's it's a rehash of, of the argument we went over earlier that, you know, if you can boycott against BDS, why can't you boycott, you know, why can't cake shops boycott against gay people? Um, and they and they just use that argument. And again, it's, it's you know, it, it just ignores what reality is it flies in the face of reality and the reason it flies in the face of reality is because um volok is too busy uh, saying the n-word yeah he is <laughs> he is an n-word hound. <laughs> so as i understand it, he's given a class and somebody who's doing a drive-by on the class somebody's walking by the class knows he's speaking at the time pops the head in and says uh peeked his head in the door and yelled to professor volok try not to say the n-word again and then he responds like a fucking robot and just goes n-word like he just yeah hard he, he was saying hard he's saying like i will say n-word if i want to basically yeah if you, he, he's responding to this person if you challenge me but, not to say the n-word i will say it right now <laughs> we'll say it's so hard <laughs> It's interesting that he feels that that's like an expression of his freedom, but that he could be played with like puppet strings. If I recall correctly, I mean, I think he had a guest lecturer uh, in that day who was like biracial, too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, the whole thing was just astounding uh, in terms of law professors, uh, you know, dropping the N-word uh, at inappropriate times, uh, being told specifically not to say it in front of a biracial uh woman who I think was actually also a transphobe, but leave that aside. Um, and then just uh, barking it out anyway. Dropping right, so like contrast yeah. this where the guy's like top priority is to maintain First Amendment uh, speech rights for saying the N-word for anybody uh, as against like the total casual shoulder shrug of the complete crushing of this political minority near non-entity saying, could you guys stop, you know, economically supporting the people who are just shooting kids in the face? Or worse, I mean, would it be okay if we advocated that you stop supporting? Right, uh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he doesn't, give a, like, he doesn't give a fuck about yeah. that. He's just like, oh, well, the technical right. distinction applies between your economic activity and you, know, you saying the about the economic activity. But if you but if you try to challenge his ability to say the N-word, he'll go hard R right in your face immediately. <laughs> right in his guest lecturer's face. <laughs> And, and and it's a deep commitment to this. Like he had this thing just a few days ago, uh, where he's writing about like there's a New Jersey directive saying, uh, oh my god, it's it's taking stock of the current coronavirus situation and saying, listen, employ you know discrimination, workplace harassment laws that are already on the books, they require you to rein in any of your employees who are creating a hostile work environment for Asians by using the term, you know, Chinese virus, Wuhan, you know, Wuhan Chinese virus. <laughs> New Jersey's saying, like, listen, we've already prohibited this conduct, and I'm just reminding you because probably because they were under the weight of, you know, humongous amount of complaints uh, by Asian employees. And he, he wants to go on record and say, whoa, 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 whoa. 
we need to get out in front of this. This is a First Amendment incursion. I have a First yeah, this Amendment is, this right. This is it chilling effect that he he does not want oh yeah he's super worried about right. it now right it just saying like hey by the way like keep an eye on your employees if they're doing like there's no there's no mandated penalties there's not even suggested like you know you have to fire you know you should fire your employees if they start saying this this is basically covering their asses just be like yo this is a new kind of racism that's coming out be on the lookout for right, it. Right, and like, understand this, it's covered by laws we've already passed. This is way more attenuated than anything in, in any of the BDS laws in terms of limiting speech. The fact that he thinks it's um, chilling to not be able to refer to uh, coronavirus as the Chinaman's woe, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is you know, <laughs> probably a good way to start. So we were saying earlier that when you ignore the analysis of historical power dynamics when you adjudicate civil rights, you end up creating this kind of giveaway to the powerful. Uh, the powerful will adopt a civil right as a way to thwart regulation. They will overturn restraints that the government might impose. Uh, so you know, to, to connect that explanation to the example we just had when we were talking about BDS, you have uh, – you have a powerful lobby that is using state law, is, federal law. Right, that's using state law to crush expression and saying that, well, that's excluded. That's excluded. That doesn't count as part of the First Amendment, right? But what what do they think does? What what do they think actually counts? I mean, this is consistent with the the opening statement, which was, you know, in a sense, the Roberts Court and I think the courts generally, this country generally, have announced that if you have an issue with being regulated. Uh, why not jam it through the First Amendment, right? Right. Um, and one of the examples I think that is uh, uh, becoming extremely popular right now is uh, in pharmaceuticals, right? Um, this idea that there should be restrictions on what you say your snake oil can do uh, has become offensive to the pharma companies. <laughs> right. Uh, and there is a huge cottage industry of uh, lawyers and law firms bringing First Amendment challenges to FDA label restrictions on pharma, right? Right. So so getting a drug through an FDA trial is, is extremely hard. It's extremely expensive. It requires multiple phases of safety and efficacy trials to to build evidence and build a bank of evidence that the drug works for what you say it works and that it's safe over the long term uh, in the required doses. And so pharma companies are limited in, in promoting a drug by the FDCA, uh, which is the statute that the FDA uh, enforces and, and, um, and oversees. And they're limited by that to promote a drug only for the uses that it's proven safe and effective for through that FDA trial process we just talked about. Now, doctors, however, the FDA does not limit doctors in prescribing drugs. And so doctors are able to, you know, your individual, you know, primary care provider can prescribe a drug for you for an off-label use. Maybe uh, a drug isn't particularly approved for that use. 
uh, by the FDA, but you know, science suggests, current studies suggest that it might be useful for that, and they can prescribe off-label to you for that. Um, now, the FDA doesn't prevent providers from doing that, but what, what pharma wants to do now is take that reality and then expand it so that they can now promote it, and they can promote it um, to doctors and to patients so that they can just say, look, the science is ahead here. We, we didn't go through all the FDA trials, but listen, everybody knows that this drug kind of works for this, and they want, you know, they want to be able to make commercials on it and, and, and do it exactly. and do promotional yeah. materials. Ask your doctor about whatever. <laughs> the FDA says no, right? If you want to promote it, you have to promote it for the for, for the – the purpose that you have proven that it's efficacious for, right? Yeah, we want to know that you, the every use that that drug is going to be told to be done is is follow certain minimum standards of safety, and you know the FDA won't necessarily get in the way of a doctor that you know knows about certain things. But you know if you're going to be putting those those ads out into TV and and letting lay people see this, you know we want to have a, a better base of knowledge as as to what happens if you take it for a certain uh, ailment. Right, and until very recently, you were you couldn't even do it to doctors. It's not that you could go to doctors and promote it for this sort of thing. That This is only a very recent change. Because doctors who are, you know, you took out to lunch, they're, they're just, they might just as easily be swayed by, yeah. your, you know, uh, convincing PowerPoint slide as uh, as a patient. Exactly. So, you, so in order to promote it, you were generally limited to the things that you went through the trials for. But what Big Pharma says is, uh, you know, trying out this new line of argument that, uh, like Targus said, that the, you know, the court is open for business is like, wait a second, this violates our First Amendment rights. We have First Amendment rights because we're corporate persons. And what you're doing is stopping us from saying things. And, and we should be allowed to say <laughs> anything that's truthful and not misleading. And if we have a medical minority, if it's, med- if it's accepted by, you know, medical practitioners, then... The government shouldn't be allowed to stop us from saying it. And so what they want to be able to do is promote these things. And, and you, you can see the danger, right? Because you could just capture a few doctors, pay them a shit ton of money and have them be like, mm-hmm. have them, uh, you know, have them become spokesmen for you. And then they get that Dr. Oz guy. He'll say anything. Right, right. <laughs> and they recommend it for whatever treatment you want. And then, you you know, you sort of backdoored snake oil and you've undermined the entire standard of the FDCA, which is, you know, supposed to you have to prove to, uh, drugs to a safe and effective standard. Now you just have to prove them to a truthful and not misleading standard. Exactly. And they can just they can just I mean, you know, drug companies pay for studies all the time. And and those aren't necessarily going to have the same you know level of rigor that an FDA trial is going to have. Right. And so they can they can promote. I mean, they would be able to promote uh, those studies and say like, yeah, even though it's not approved for this, you know, they might have to have a disclaimer saying this isn't approved by the FDA. Um, but they could they could bombard you know CNN with ads to say that it does you know whatever. So they wanted to use the First Amendment right for this. I will say that this this practice has kind of been. It, it, a large part of it has ended up mooted because just like a lot of um, these utilizations of, <laughs> of civil rights for corporate has kind of been mooted uh, as a legal strategy since the election of the Trump admin because the Trump admin they just, just rolled over. Yeah, right? They're just fucking yeah. giving it away. <laughs> he doesn't care at all. Right. Now, Trump wants you to affirmatively defraud people. <laughs> right. He thinks that should be legal. So these were all building legal strategies that law firms were really excited to, uh, you know, to put into play. And they probably will because the FDA has rolled over with respect to your ability, uh, a pharma company's ability to uh, promote to payers, to promote to, you know, essentially like insurers or uh, other payers, you know, for instance, like a, like a health managed organization or something. Um, 
but they're not quite allowed to promote to patients yet. And so you may see this kind of challenge, but but in large part, it's it's been mooted by the fact that the Trump administration just jumped out and said, uh, no, this is all legal. It's fine. It's fine. They, they adopt the truthful and non-misleading standard, I think, in at least for payers in uh, 2018. Yeah. And just as a kind of to see how this works in other countries. Um, Australia had forced cigarette companies to put, I mean, you, if you've ever been abroad, you've probably seen kind of packaging that has like a dead guy on it or just like yeah. weird, gross teeth. Yeah. Um, so what tobacco companies did when Australia enacted those laws was they, um, took it to the WTO. They basically, you know, they underwrote or, or gave a bunch of money to a bunch of tobacco producing countries, uh, to bring a, a, a trade claim basically saying, Hey, uh, you know, um, you know, we have a right to free trade. We have a right to free, and they use these free speech arguments in their in their trade, basically saying that these regulations um, violate, you know, the the various economic freedoms that that the tobacco companies had. Uh, and the WTO struck that down. And the WTO, obviously, not a bleeding heart, you know, liberal organization. Um, you know, obviously, they don't have the U.S. Constitution, and they and they have a slightly different focus. But just to see how this stuff works on a you know on an international level. Um, those free speech arguments don't fly at all. <laughs> right, right. But here, but here, where we where we bend the knee to add to free speech arguments, and where the Supreme Court has invited uh, these these kind of free speech arguments, the First Amendment is becoming uh, an active tool for deregulation. I think it's important to to note that I don't even think we, as an American society, would have bought these arguments thirty years ago. Right. I mean, right. This is new. Like, yeah. this shit is getting actively more deranged by the minute, right? I mean, right. even, like, Bork, who was, you know, rejected from the Supreme Court for being an extremist, you know, back in the 80s or whatever, uh, felt that only political speech was protected under the First Amendment, right? The notion that... Um, this whole idea of commercial speech and money is speech and, you know, my right to, to tell you that uh, my, uh, you know, my, my snake oil cures cancer uh, is a First <laughs> Amendment issue. You know, all of this is relatively new. Right, like uh, Rehnquist, you know, William Rehnquist, conservative chief justice of the, of the Supreme Court, he dissented in a case that recognized commercial speech protection. Right. And I mean, I think just more generally, if you are a very high liberty kind of person that thinks that all sorts of, of you know legal protections are basically just meant to exist in the free market, you don't want people defrauding other people because that undermines the the whole notion of a free market. And so, you know, the the fact that it's expanding into these like crazy levels of of towing the line between truth and fiction kind of shows that, you know, whether it's, you know, just pure partisanship or contrarianism or, or you know, if they're just being captured by these industries, um, that this kind of First Amendment scholarship, you know, is moving to a dangerous place. But like in some cases they want uh, – they actually do appear to want to protect fraud where it serves their political ends. Like in that Nif- exactly, in that yeah. NIFLA crisis uh, pregnancy center case that we talked about, you have – you know, you have a place that's like misdirecting people, inviting Fraud them. Fraud is the business model. Right, that's yeah, what I'm saying. They're yeah, they're pretending yeah. like we they're... have these medical procedures. We can perform these medical procedures. You know, all the while being what they believe is vague enough, but apparently to the state of California was not vague enough. Right, and, uh, and to any rational person would not be right. <laughs> and so they're 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 trying to throw up these baffles to block you and 
and delay you and attempt to convince you otherwise. And then the state of California says, well, no, actually, you're not allowed to just, you know, create false impressions, effectively lie to people about the medical procedures you're able to do. You're going to ha- if you're going to do this, you're going to have to disclose to them that you're completely full of shit. Yeah. But they're actual legitimate doctors two blocks away. Right. Right. <laughs> um. And we're not gonna and we're not gonna let you do we're not gonna let you come up with your own script for doing it. We're gonna write it for you because you're fucking lying. That's what you do. When someone's lying, you don't ask them, okay, well, could you come up with a nice way to explain that you're actively lying right now? <laughs> you do it yourself. But the Supreme Court uh, rejected that and they said, Well, no, this is government scripted. This is compelled speech. You can't put speech in people's mouths. Well, well, maybe you should be able to if what they're doing is right. a straight-up fucking lie. They said, okay. <laughs> Fundamentally causing people harm. Right. So so with all of this fucking debacle that we're talking about, uh, the, 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 the pharma example, the crisis pregnancy center example, these are not nearly the only examples that are starting to invoke the First Amendment. There was an empirical study uh, by one academic, John Coates, who, that said that Nearly half of First Amendment legal challenges now are coming from business corporations and trade groups rather than other kind, you know, nonprofit organizations or individuals. That's where they're coming from. The message is clear to them. We have First Amendment rights, and it's time to use them to start shrugging off these shitty laws from states to stop us from making money or doing whatever the fuck we want to do. Yeah, and and this isn't like an accident that existed out of First Amendment law. It's not that, you know— uh, the framers of the Constitution necessarily or, or, you know, any more modern jurisprudence, you know, forgot about this kind of stuff. It's that the people that are making First Amendment jurisprudence now, as I was saying, you know, a minute ago, you know, whether it's, you know, they're not necessarily a, a shadow, well, actually, they kind of are a shadowy cabal in some federal society, <laughs> but um, to the extent that they are not a shadowy cabal, you know, they share this ideology that, that the markets are king and that, you know, however many people are, are dying or being defrauded by uh, uh, a, a fake abortion clinic, like, that's the cost of freedom for them. That, that's yeah. the co- and that's the cost, really, for the, the profits that the free market makes. And it's not necessarily that they're going to see all those profits. They're not corrupt. They're not getting kickbacks from these companies. You know, I mean, they're being, you know, handsomely rewarded with judgeships and prestige and all that, but they're not, it's not a corrupt uh, uh, link necessarily. It's just that they they see that society as, you know, worth those deaths and, and worth, you know, all of the bad stuff that comes from interpreting the First Amendment in, in such a warped way. You know, if I, if I can't die from, uh, you know, massive internal hemorrhaging due to uh, off-label use of medication, am I really free? Yeah, it's it's the freedom to die. (laughs) (laughs) Is that really is that really freedom? Said half, uh, half of half of First Amendment legal challenges uh, now benefit business corporations and trade groups, right? And the other half benefit Edwards. Our law professors say in the end, law yeah. saying right. the fucking yeah. Edward. So this guy, this this guy is like such a great place to end because his story is so fucking ridiculous. His name is Paul Zweer, and he is a scholar at Emory Law. 
and he was instructed by the law school to apologize for using the n-word because he called on a black student in his first year towards class and uh while referencing uh a civil assault case uh from the 60s what he suggested he wanted to he wanted to He's got a black student on call, and what he wants to do is raise the point that he believes that the 1967 court opinion has been sanitized. And he wants to suggest that what he thinks actually happened in this case, although it doesn't say it, what I think actually happened <laughs> is he said the N-word. The most legally salient. The fact. motherfucking N-word. So he, go- hard he, goes hard R- he goes hard R in class with a black student on call, Okay, in a 1967 case, where the point that he is making is that is that the is that the case did not say yes. The in 1967, <laughs> they had the sensibility <laughs> to scrub the fucking hard R and, and do so. I guess in a way that like it would have been impo- like they would have done it in a way that was clear that that's what was going on. I don't like people understood what that was back this then. This is 2019, and he's like, we got to step it up. Yeah, and and not that this should matter, but I mean, obviously, Emory being like a deep South state, like you know, the the not the optics because I always think that's kind of a wishy washy word, but the the just the whole scenario is just dripping with this kind of deep irony. Yeah. So what ends up happening is that this this event leads to a lot of a lot of hubbub. Okay, people get really pissed off, um, and then there's like some you know public censure of this, and then uh, a black student goes to his office you know goes to office hours and says like look i'm just trying to understand this man like what what were you thinking like what why would you it, it appears that you've said the n-word in class uh to a black can, student you, can you, you essentially called the student the n-word can you explain this to me now i'm probably saying now i'm i'm saying this with with deference to the student if you read the academic report they you know they question the student's credibility or whatever but like i'm not gonna fucking do that the guy goes to his office hours and says why'd you say the n-word and what and what Zweer says is this guy is a fucking legal academic who is living a cushy life beyond your reach. If you're listening to this podcast, he's doing better than you are. He's <laughs> he's got he's got ten. As they always are. They always are. This guy. So what he says is, listen, I I've trained attorneys and judges in litigation, in dispute resolution, in Kenya, Liberia, <laughs> Tanzania. Yeah, you noticing you noticing the locale here? Any uh, hmm? Any, no. you notice anything? My father marched for civil rights, and I, because I was friends, I had black friends. He's telling this to the guy who came to his office, asked why he said the N word. He goes, "I was actually called an N word lover," and he says, "Hard R <laughs> to the guy." <laughs> this is fucking unbelievable. So the student goes, "There you go again." There you go again. There you go again. <laughs> so he goes hard R with the guy who comes to him to say, I, I, I'm offended. Why did you I'm, do that? I actually have suffered more racism he doubled than up. you have. He doubled up. It's unbelievable how fucking stupid that is. It's honestly, like, more offensive to just basically tell a student that, like, I've suffered more racism than yeah. you than saying the N-word. In the, like, that's usually just kind of, like, a goof or, like, you know, it's it's bad, but, you know, it's just a thing that happened. Going directly to a student be like, listen here, you black student, like. So, uh, he was suspended from school, right? Um, and then uh, our friend, 
uh, Adam Steinbaugh at Fire, among other uh, 1A guys. I love you, bro. Uh, I'm sorry. Love you, Adam. But, uh, you know, as we said at the top of this, we're, we're coming out hard against the hard R. Uh, I will say, uh, though, the yeah. uh, the Fire article does not censor the word in it. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, uh, Fire and other organizations uh, defended him. And he, in fact, got his job back. Uh, so... Um, Good news for the First Amendment. Um, <laughs> right, right. It stands defended and not under attack in any way. Thank God. Amen. All's well that ends well. Really yeah, paradise of liberty for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> right. Somewhere I have a watercolor you did. I saw you walking on the sand in Thailand. Seem to let you off the chain. 